Well, if you've got a Bible with you, um, please do open that back up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, and this morning, we're going to be focusing in on that sort of central section of what Rachel was reading, verses 18 to 25. Um, as you're looking it up uh, again, though, I want to ask a question as we begin. As you look at the world around, who is it that is celebrated as wise? Who are the wise of the world? Is it those with the highest IQ? Is it the university professor? Is it those who have made particular scientific or technological breakthroughs? Or perhaps uh, we'd say uh, the wise of the world today are the gurus, right? The gurus who will help you to learn the power of mindfulness who will help you to enjoy the freedom of you just being you, who will help you to finally be the real you, the optimized you, by taking the eating and drinking exactly the right stuff. See, it seems nowadays, more than ever, wisdom is being offered to us anywhere and everywhere, right? We wait with bated breath for the latest blog post, or five-minute video from the newest social media celebrity who will offer us the latest trick or a way of thinking that's going to help change and transform our lives. Well, with all of that in mind, in our passage that we're looking at uh, this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 25, Paul wants to turn the tables on the wisdom of the world. He wants us to help think rightly about it compared to God's wisdom. See, we saw, didn't we, from the earlier verses that Rachel read for us, that there seemed to be divisions breaking out in the Corinthian church. The Christians there are tempted to describe themselves as followers of the latest Christian celebrity, as it were, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. And then also, look with me there at verse 17, just before the section that we're looking at. See there, Paul writes that he came and he didn't preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, it seems that these Corinthian Christians at the time were not only dividing themselves off into separate little celebrity follower groups, but also they were beginning to seek after the wisdom of the world. They were now beginning to seek after different teaching from that of Paul's. Teaching that did come with words of eloquent wisdom. Words that not only uh, would have had a certain style, they would have used clever rhetoric. They would have also had this right content for the time. Potentially upholding the, the widespread stoic values that were around in the Corinthian church and in the Corinthian culture. Values of justice, strength, freedom, amongst other things. For the Corinthian Christians, associating themselves with this type of teaching, this worldly wise teaching, that in its form was attractive and that in its content was in keeping with wisdom of the time, that would have been very attractive to them. Would have offered them benefits Above all, helping them to improve their social standing, earn them respect and favor with those around them. But Paul, in this little section that we're looking at this morning, wants to challenge their way of thinking in seeking after the wisdom of the world. 
He wants the Corinthian Christians to not be fooled by the wisdom of the world, but instead to hold fast to his teaching on the cross of Christ. And this call for the Corinthians then stands for us today too. We've just celebrated Easter, haven't we? We've spent time thinking about the cross of Christ. But I wonder if deep down we've ever just been tempted to leave behind that kind of teaching. Leave that teaching behind knowing that holding fast to it really isn't helping us when we look at the world around us. It often actually makes us look foolish, doesn't it? Foolish in front of the, in the eyes of our family, of our friends, of our neighbours, of our colleagues. Maybe it would actually just be better for us to leave behind the Bible's teaching on the cross and instead just make sure we're keeping up with, practicing whatever the latest celebrity says we should be doing. That way we can fit in with others around us and we, like the Corinthians back then, can climb up the social ladder. Well, for us, just like the Corinthian Christians Paul was originally writing to, he wants us to similarly not be fooled by the wisdom of the world, but instead to hold fast to the preaching that we've heard on the cross of Christ. So with that purpose in mind, let's get into the specifics of this passage. Uh, And to help us focus in on what Paul's saying here, we're not going to work through it exactly chronologically. We're going to split it up into three different sections. So it would probably be helpful if you have got a Bible just to have that open, as we will be doing a little bit of jumping around. First of all, uh, as Paul begins this call to hold fast to the preaching of the cross, he wants us to know that the preaching of the cross does seem foolish according to the wisdom of the world. See, the Corinthians, Paul is saying, they aren't wrong. Having accepted Christ, they now are beginning to realize that there are some wider implications at stake from having done that. As they've talked with others about Christ and his death on the cross for their sins, they have realized that so many people around them think that what they are talking about is foolish. See how Paul puts it in the first half of verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Non-Christians all around them are probably repeatedly telling these Corinthian Christians to come to their senses. To see how completely opposite the word of the cross is to what everyone else around them thinks is wisdom. You can imagine the conversations, can't you? Maybe they went something like this. That guy Paul that you were listening to, he really wasn't anything special, was he? He didn't seem to give high value to rhetoric, to, to, to highly crafted speeches, to gift like our gifted orators of today. He came simply with that one message, didn't he? The word of the cross. No words of eloquent wisdom. And then what about that message that he brought to you concerning the cross? What foolishness is that? Nonsense. I mean, who in their right mind could think that someone dying on the cross could be good news? Death on the cross is the lowest of the low. You know that. The crucified are the cursed. You're all fools. And what about this guy, Jesus? He seems to be all about the opposite of what we're about. There's no mastery of life in him. He had the opportunity to be lauded, to have success and honor. And instead, he chose to die a most shameful death. 
How can you Corinthian Christians possibly be living like that is true? And how can you be living like that's good news? You're all fools. Just as the message you're believing in is foolishness. See, see how Paul picks up on what he said in the first half of verse 18 later. If you jump with me to verses 22 to 23. There he unpacks this. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. By talking about both the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul's making them the representative of all of humanity. Paul is making this point here. He's saying the message of Christ crucified, someone dying on the cross, is foolish by any and every worldly standard. If we ever want to be considered wise in the world's eyes, we will need to move away from this message and instead make, up, make sure we're up with the latest wisdom that the world has to offer around us. Now, I think it's worth stopping and applying this truth a little bit more to us today. See, crucifixion, in some senses, has to, is, well, it's no longer really a big part of our society, thankfully. So the stigma, the disgust that might come immediately back then with the cross, that's been left behind, perhaps. So does that change what Paul's saying here? Is the message of cross, uh, the cross still a stumbling block? Is it still foolishness? And I think as we think about that question, even if it's for slightly different re- specific reasons now, I think it still absolutely is, isn't it? Let's take, let's take for example, accepted and celebrated wisdom of the world. For example, the idea of pluralism. That's pretty big, isn't it? And the idea of individualism. The right to choose and, uh, and do as I see fit. Combined, pluralism, individualism, they couldn't stand in much sharper contrast with the word of the cross, could they? Jesus teaches that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And in saying that, the cross sits right at the center of that message. It is only through Christ's work on the cross that we can come to the Father. But that kind of exclusive message is foolishness to the world around us. How can we possibly say as Christians that Christ is the only way? We all surely have the right to think and do whatever we want, don't we? And what about the wisdom of the self-help world that's growing around us? In that world, the answers and solutions to the problem that I face, well, they simply lie within me. If I can just find a way to unlock them. Well, how does that kind of message sound when compared to the word of the cross, which says you can't find the answers yourself? Instead, you need to turn to Christ and Christ alone. Find all of your hope, all of your strength, all of your peace, finding forgiveness in the death of Christ on the cross. We don't have time to think about all the other aspects of the world's wisdom now. Maybe you can think of other specifics as well. But it really doesn't take long to see, does it, that the preaching of Christ crucified, how that looks like foolishness 
to those who are living by worldly standards of wisdom. How, in fact, preaching Christ crucified today might actually be a stumbling block to people coming to believe the gospel. Because it goes against what everyone else seems to be living for, to be thinking is good and wise. So if that's true, I guess the question is, do we need to adapt our message? Here at Great Vic, do we need to leave the preaching of Christ off to one side? And in your own personal conversations with others around you, do you need to do likewise? That way, maybe we'll be more attractive. Surely, we'll, we'll draw more people to us. And we may even gain credit, again, in the social world around us, as people look at us and think they are wise. Well, if that's something that we're considering doing, Paul wants to make it very clear that that is not a good option. See, Paul wants us to know that people might judge the word of the cross, the preaching of Christ crucified, to be foolishness, but he also wants us to know that God is going to flip that judgment. And God will actually himself judge the wisdom of the world. So we don't go running after that wisdom. See what uh, Paul says in verses 19 to 20, if you follow along with me. He writes this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here, in quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, it's as if Paul is saying, Look at how God has always worked. It has never been that it's by human wisdom people come to him, make themselves right with him. That's never been the case. Instead, it is actually true that God judges those who consider themselves wise in their own eyes. Notice there that that quote uh, from Isaiah in verse 19, it's in the future tense. This destruction of the wisdom of the wise and the thwarting of the discernment of the discerning, that's going to happen in the future. Which makes you think, doesn't it, when will that happen? And I think verse 20 gives us the first answer. And that's that it already has happened. See there how verse 20 is written with that series of seemingly rhetorical questions building on each other. Where is the one who is wise? There isn't anybody. Where is the scribe? Not to be found. Where's the debater of this age? Nowhere. Why? Because has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. What was foreseen in that quote from verse 19 has come to pass once and for all through Christ crucified. Through Christ crucified, God has made foolish not only the wisdom of the wise, but the wise themselves too. Those who seemingly in the world's eyes were so learned, so clever, so celebrated. So in that sense, God has already delivered the knockout blow to the wise, to their wisdom, through sending his son to shamefully, from a worldly point of view, die on a cross. But we also know, don't we, that as we look at the world around us, there are still these kind of people. 
the worldly wise, wise in their own eyes. They're still going around being celebrated as well, aren't they? So this judgment of God on the foolish must also be referring to a future day, a final future day when this judgment will ultimately fall. From what Paul writes here, we need to know and be warned that this is, there is a final day coming when all worldly wisdom will perish. It will completely fall away and those trusting in it will face the judgment of God. As I was thinking about this, it got me uh, thinking about the example of Lance Armstrong. don't know if you remember him. It was a few years back now. But I think it's a good illustration of the truth that Paul is is preaching and teaching here. Not for the specifics of the case, but because of the reversal of fortunes. See, Lance Armstrong was the man, wasn't he? In the 90s, in the 2000s. He'd won seven Tour de France cycling titles. He was one of the most idolized sports people in history. Even, he, he even won those titles having previously had to receive treatment for cancer. But in reality, he was cheating all the time. Being involved in what's been described as the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program the sport, that sport has ever seen. During his career, there'd been suspicions, but they'd always been ignored or discredited. But then, going back to what we've just been saying, there came a day. A day when the truth finally came out. In 2013, Armstrong himself made a confession of his involvement, even if it was a limited one. And what was the result of that? He went from being one of the most celebrated people in history to one of the most judged and condemned. Now, as I said, the specifics are different there, but the reversal of fortunes is pretty much exactly the same as what Paul is talking about in this passage. The wise, the scribe, the debater of this age, whoever it is that is exalted because of their worldly wisdom, well, each and every one of them should know that a day is coming when that wisdom will be made foolish and they will be judged by God. In that day, if people are standing proudly on their own worldly wisdom, just like Lance Armstrong, they will then face judgment and condemnation from exalted and celebrated to judged and condemned. Worldly wisdom, deep down, is often really about seeking to increase our own influence, our own power, our own honor, our own reputation. But we need to recognize that that worldly representation, recognition, well, it's only going to last a short time. A bit like Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, where he writes that those who do good only to be praised by others have received their reward. So it is with these people seeking after worldly wisdom. They may well receive a reward in the here and now. Popularity, fame, growing reputation but that reward will not last. Apart from trusting in what the world considers foolish, the word of the cross, they will face judgment. This is a warning that Paul wants the Corinthian church then to take to heart, and he wants us to take it to heart today. We need to hear this warning. I wonder if deep down you do ever find yourself tempted to do or say things 
to others in order to appear wise in their eyes? Do you ever find yourself shying away from speaking about the fact that you live your life differently to others around you? You live it according to God's wisdom, according to what his word says. And instead, put on a front, you put on a front of living exactly like everyone else around you. Sure, it is good, isn't it, to engage with people, to engage with what other people are living for so that we can show them Christ. Often, even those things can have some good advice in them as people share ideas, how we can look after ourselves properly, how we can present ourselves well. Not, not in essence, a problem but just remember and beware that if those kind of things, worldly wisdom becomes what you are trusting in for your life, well, our passage warns us that God judges those who live like that, who live trusting in their own worldly wisdom. As Paul writes there, so he sums it up, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. He's done that already on the cross, and he will do that once and for all on that final day. Living, trusting in worldly wisdom is a bit like being handed a bar of chocolate. It most likely will taste sweet in the present, but eventually it'll come to an end. And then what are you left with? A worthless wrapper that's going to be thrown into the bin. It's empty. Okay, so up to this point, we've seen that Paul wants us to know that the preaching of the cross seems foolish to the world, but he also wants us to know that God will judge the wisdom of the world. So what is it we should do in response to these things? Well, here's the third and final thing that Paul would have us do. He would say, given all of that, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by what the world perceives to be foolish and wise. Instead, hold fast to the preaching of the cross. Because in God's wisdom, it is powerful to save. Hold fast to the preaching of the cross. Because in God's wisdom, it is powerful to save. Look at how uh, Paul puts it in verse 18. He writes, For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Likewise, in verse 21, Paul writes that in the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is Christ crucified, to save those who believe. That saving language is so crucial. Do you see, the word of the cross is foolishness to those described as perishing. But on the other hand, the word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. Worldly wisdom might seem attractive, but it will amount to nothing and it will lead to death. God's wisdom, it might not seem immediately attractive, but it will lead to life and salvation. Maybe we can uh, think of it through another illustration. We could say that the word of the cross, the preaching of Christ crucified, is a bit like a tool, like a chisel. If you look at a chisel, it doesn't look particularly impressive on its own, does it? Maybe you think, what's the purpose of it? But in the right hands, 
It's incredible what can be done. It can achieve incredible results. Wood carved and sculpted into incredible, intricate, beautiful designs. Tree, trump, tree stumps transformed into furniture, whatever it might be. See, in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, that chisel, even though it looks worthless, is powerful. It can transform something. And so it is with the word of the cross, the preaching of Christ crucified. It might seem like nothing. It might seem insignificant, even foolish. But it is the means, the true means, that God has chosen to powerfully save his people to transform his people, to transform those that he's called. And notice with me who it is that's being saved. If you look in verse 21, it isn't the humanly wise, it is those who believe. Those who are believing in the preaching of and the message of the cross. Again, even in saying that, can you hear it? It sounds foolish, doesn't it, to the world? Surely there must be something more involved, something of my own human wisdom and skill needed. But no, believe. Go on believing. That is what's required for salvation. The image here is of someone standing on a street corner hearing Christ proclaimed, Christ crucified, Someone sitting in a church hearing the word of the cross. Someone at home who time and time again hears their parents speaking of Christ's work and death for them. And hearing that, by God's spirit, they perceive the truth of it. They perceive not only that it's true that God sent his son to die on the cross for them, but they perceive that it is powerful to save them. Isn't that incredible? As verse 18 says, they perceive it is the power of God in their lives. And as verse 24 says, Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. That is the Spirit's work in the hearts of those who God has called. No matter where they come from, whether they are Jew, Greek, or anywhere from anywhere else, that they hear of Christ crucified and they understand its power, its significance for them. They understand that that message is completely life-transforming. See, saving people through the preaching of Christ crucified has always been God's plan, the way he planned to save his people. It might seem foolish, but it is so powerful in his hands. Christ crucified strips away any possibility of pride from us. It says to you and to me, look at the extent of your sin, your weakness, your failing, that the Father would have to send his own son to die for you. And wasn't that death so powerful, so wise? Is there really any other way that sinners like us could be made right with a completely and utterly holy, perfect God? See, the sacrifices instituted in the Old Testament where an animal would die in place of God's people atoning for their sin, they had to be made again and again, repeatedly. They weren't sufficient, as we're reminded of in the book of Hebrews. But that wasn't the case for Christ. Instead, we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, 
that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then the author of, the Hebrews, of Hebrews goes on. Just listen to these incredible words. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. If that isn't power and wisdom, what is? By death, by the death of Christ, by his sacrifice, by his blood, he has redeemed those who will put their faith in him. He's redeemed them completely. He's paid the price for, them, for their sin. He has made them completely right with God. And he has turned away God's wrath forever. No more do those trusting in Christ need to fear the wrath of God because of their sin. Because instead, Christ stood once and for all in our place as our substitute, taking our sin with him to the cross. As Romans 8 verse 1 declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the power, that is the wisdom of God, that he can do that work in our lives because of Christ crucified. And if that weren't enough, now as believers in Christ, not only are we sinless, but we're actually righteous and incredibly, we're now welcomed as, and received as adopted sons and daughters in God's family. We, who were once so far off, have been brought near. And we're loved by God the Father just as he loves his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that an incredible thought? This means that we can talk with our God openly and freely, knowing he loves to hear us. He is our perfect Father who will give good things to his children. He will give us the Holy Spirit. He will be with us to help us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, to help us to hold fast to the, cro to the cross. That is the true power of God, that in the pure and simple preaching of these truths of Christ crucified, his people might be saved. His people might be transformed. His people may be made, made new and have an incredible, glorious future to look forward to as we dwell with our God forever. Don't we want to just say, yes, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that in your wisdom, you have changed us by the simple proclamation of your truth, by your spirit. You are changing us. You have changed us and we have an eternity to come to look forward to spending with you. Well, as we come towards a close for us this morning, I want to leave us where Paul leaves us in verse 25, because he, he, in this verse, just sums up all that he has been saying. He writes there, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Paul wants to say to us this morning, don't you see the foolishness of God, the weakness of God, that is the simple, not for show, not flashy proclamation of the gospel is completely incomparable with all those other things that the world calls wisdom and strength. They fade into insignificance, into nothing. Others might call the preaching of Christ crucified foolishness and weakness, but it is ultimate wisdom and it is ultimate power. And given that, Paul is telling the Corinthians then, and he's telling us now to stop striving for worldly wisdom. Stop striving for worldly honor and strength, but instead go back to the cross. Go back to putting all of your trust in God. He is so much wiser and so much stronger than any human being. He's saying to us to not only go on believing the word of the cross, but to go on preaching it and proclaiming it as well believing and preaching Christ crucified, even as that means that the world around us will most likely judge us, mock us, and mock the message that we bring. Paul himself is a prime example of living this out, isn't he? Judged, mocked, condemned for his ongoing belief in and refusal to stop from proclaiming Christ crucified. Paul didn't even let the threat of death stop him from holding fast to the preaching of the cross. Why? Because Paul knows this truth. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As we go on into the week ahead, are we ready to follow Paul's example then? This week, as we scroll through Instagram on our phones, as we watch the latest post from the social media influencer, as we talk with colleagues at work or with friends and families in our homes, let's not be fooled. Let's not be swayed off course, either by the seemingly attractive worldly wisdom that those people are offering us, or by their dismissal, mockery of what we believe as being foolish. But instead, let's hold fast to the preaching of the cross, to its saving, life-transforming power. It really, truly does stand as the one most incredible, most powerful message that the world has ever heard. Let's hold fast to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you through the preaching of Christ crucified, have made a way for us to come to you. Lord, thank you so much for those who over the years have preached to us, have brought this message of salvation, of hope, of wisdom, of power to us. And Lord, thank you for those that you have brought into your kingdom. Thank you for the work of your spirit in granting us to see that this is not foolishness, but this is ultimate power, this is ultimate wisdom. And Lord, please, by your spirit, would you help us to hold fast to that message, to not shy away from speaking with others about Christ, because he truly is the one hope of the world. And Lord, 
For any who are here this morning or listening along online who don't yet know Christ, Lord, please would you be at work in their hearts. Please would you even now, by your spirit, be showing them their need of him. And Lord, please would they run into his open arms, the arms of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace that are thrown open wide for them. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Christ's sacrifice for us once for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we respond to what we've just heard from God's word, we're going to respond by singing two um, final songs, uh, When I Survey and Ode to See the Dawn. And as you'll see, both of these songs pick up here on, on the cross of Christ, on his sacrifice for us. So let's continue to reflect on and praise God for his wisdom and his power uh, as we sing together of the work of the Son on the cross. Let's stand and sing together now.
as we stand forgiven at the cross, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Please do take a seat uh, again. Uh,